Hi, I'm Leah Wheatholter, owner of Workman Forensics, and this is the Investigation Game Podcast. On this week's episode, Leah interviews Justin Seitz via Skype. Listen now for part two of the two-part episode. Welcome back to my interview with Justin Seitz. Have Hunchley reports been used in court? And if they have, have they been successful? Or kind of what's some of the feedback that you've gotten from your reports being used in court? Yeah, so this is one of our biggest challenges is we're constantly out there like asking our users to talk about court with us. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that Hunchley has been used in court proceedings. I actually have testified myself with backstopped Hunchley data in court proceedings. Now, Mm -hmm. the the tricky part is, number one, there was a very well-publicized terrorism case up here in Canada where Hunchley was mentioned. It's called Crown versus Hamden. Most investigators in Canada are pretty familiar with it. You know, that's where the, the name Hunchley is actually mentioned in the summary in our Can Lee database up here. But the tricky piece is, is that often the case law summaries do not include like the full testimony from investigators, right? So you go into right. the full testimony and you can kind of read like we use this tool and I extracted this file or, you know, I examined this line of this ledger, whatever, right? The challenge we're finding is that like we have police officers, private investigators, insurance and fraud investigators who come to us and say, yeah, you know, we submitted Hunchley material to court, no issues. And I come back and say, well, okay, can you tell me what case it was? No, we can't. Can you tell me like what district I can search records in perhaps? And it's Mm -hmm. like, no, we can't. We've also had cases where police have come to me and said, 90% of this case actually originated online, which is relatively rare, right? Because generally there's always a physical real world component that's involved, right? Right. And they're like, yep. And so like we provided all these materials to the defense And, you know, uh, the only thing they could challenge were these online materials. But when we backed it all up with the way Hunchley captures it, we got a guilty plea. It's, we are having, like, this is our greatest challenge is hearing back from people or finding, you know, transcripts of trials or court proceedings where Hunchley materials are used. And I have a whole bunch of monitoring in place looking for those things Mm -hmm. and just not getting any hits even though we know that people are using it. They are submitting materials to the courts in all kinds of jurisdictions. So I wish I had a a really pithy thing to say like, yes, and here's this great case where I can show you how Hunchley was the difference maker. We're having a major challenge of finding that out. Yeah, I can see why you would want the stats on that for sure. But at the same time, the positive thing that I hear out of you saying this is that essentially cases are settling or there's guilty pleas. That's one of our favorite things to do with data and the way we put together our cases is that it's so clear that we don't have to go argue about it. And so I actually think that's a really big positive in using Hunchly and just being able to see where did all this information come from? Because if it is just a screenshot or they forgot to get a screenshot or something, you know, I saw this one day, whatever. I mean, you're just creating more room for the other side to argue. But when something can be tracked, then if if something can be tracked, I think that just removes more of the arguments, which in our world sometimes translates into a lot less expensive fight than what originally happened as far as legal fees and our fees and so forth. Yeah. Well, and I think like for me, you know, I I agree. Like, I, I think it's a positive sign. And, you know, we... 
like I mentioned, you know, a huge chunk of our user base is law enforcement, right? Mm -hmm. And they are very sticky about how they capture stuff and, and how they preserve things and disclosure rules and all of that stuff. But for me, there's also this like creeping paranoia. The longer that we go on without our evidence being challenged, the yeah. more I worry about it, right? Because I want it to go through a challenge so that we have we have kind of a benchmark of where we need to go in the future and understanding where we stand with current evidence rules. And because our customers are international, there's vastly different disclosure rules and evidence rules from California to Oklahoma and right. from Oklahoma to Canada and from Canada to the Netherlands, for example. We have to be pretty on the mark because all our customers are spread on every continent except for Antarctica, right? right. Um, I'm sure there might even be some type of law enforcement officer down there that might use it at some point. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's interesting, but it does create a bit of paranoia in me because I, you know, I, I really do care that if we ever make a mistake or we've done something to jeopardize one of our clients, I want to make sure that that we remedy that uh, or that we're at least aware of it. So it's a positive thing, but I also, it's not a negative thing for me. I just think it's this kind of, you know, I care about my customers. And so the longer that things go on without any hitches, the more paranoid I get, right? <laughs> totally understand. And I do think that there's a healthy like skepticism or review of the things that we're working on as investigators just to keep thinking, how could someone use this against me? You know, in my interview with uh, Kelly Paxson, we kind of talk about working both sides of the case that works in my world. Can I work the other side to see how can we get better on both sides? I, I get that completely. We love case stories on this podcast. I was wondering, you've kind of, you've shared several stories, but do you have a favorite consulting example or Hunchly win that you would like to share? One of my favorite Hunchly wins, and you know, this involves some kind of dicey stuff, but I had a, a customer of mine, she's uh, an investigator, uh, not in North America, and she had sent me an email. And basically what she described to me was a case that she was working on. So she, uh, she was working on the defense side and her client was being charged with sexual assault. And what had happened was the man had been in a relationship with a woman for some time and the relationship broke down and then she alleged that he had assaulted her more than once. What happened was the man, as anyone who's charged with anything does, they completely deny, right? They're like, no, 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 this is not what happened. And in fact, I did all of the things she said I did, but she asked me to do them. But this is incredibly difficult to, to prove. And, you know, consent is, a, is a certainly something that's, you know, is a hotly debated thing. Yeah, sure. Um, but what happened was the investigator went out and started kind of digging around just to see, you know, are there, is there any evidence that supports what my client is saying? What she did find was there was a blog that the complainant had maintained for some period of time that actually talked in fairly graphic detail about how she wanted to be assaulted, all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And in fact, some of it was nearly word for word from her complaint. So she not only had built up these fantasies over a period of time, but had actually then, you know, this guy had helped her to carry them out. And yep. then when the complaint was filed, she had actually described almost word for word 
were things she had blogged about in the past. And so immediately the investigator captures all of this material and contacts the lawyer who's in charge of defending him. The next day, and this is not uncommon when people are involved in court cases, they start to purge their social media or, you know, anything that could be uh, that could, you know, shine a light on them that might be uncomfortable. Now, the interesting thing was that the lawyer went to the website the next day and it was gone. And so went back to the investigator and the investigator's like, no, no, no. What are you talking about? It was like, I just looked at it yesterday. Goes to the website. It's done. It's gone. Everything's gone. But naturally, the Hunchley captures captured everything pristinely. And so they were able to go back to to the prosecution and say, listen, he's saying that she asked him to do all of these things long before she met him. She was openly discussing wanting these things. And in the end, the female withdrew her complaint and admitted that he had, in fact, just done what she had asked. Now, the scary Uh thing to me is the fact that had she not been able to capture those materials or ever encounter them or ever find them, that guy could be sitting in jail today. I know. Yeah. That's That's the scary thing to me is not really the fact that our product helped win the day. There still could have been ways that you wouldn't have required our product to do that. It was just that, you know, this is exactly what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. But the, um, you know, the scary thing to me was that, yeah, if that wouldn't have been along for the ride, that guy's life might have played out in a vastly different way, right? When a client needs your help on a fraud investigation, it's often the most exciting and also the most overwhelming day. Most investigators know they can figure out how to work a fraud investigation. But what if there was a way to practice working a fraud case while leveraging data and having questions answered by a pro in a small group setting? Leah Wheatholder, CFE PI, and David Jansen, CFE CAMS, have prepared a one-day seminar to show you the ropes of working a fraud investigation using data from start to finish, including a session of money laundering. Each session is presented by these experienced certified fraud examiners with hands-on learning activities. The seminar concludes with the investigation game, Case of the Man Cave, which fulfills the annual two hours of ethics requirements. At the conclusion of the seminar, you will have practical tools and experience to work fraud investigations with confidence and eight hours of CPE. Each seminar is limited to 16 attendees, so sign up today at beadatasleuth.com or call us at 918-574-6616. Gosh. That's definitely one of my favorite kind of Hunchley stories. But I, I you know, if you want me to share a, a, a consulting story, I'm happy to do that too. Yeah, we'd love that. Cool. Yeah, so one of my favorite ones, there was a lady who was anonymous on Twitter, as many mm-hmm. Twitter users are, and she yeah. was kind of issuing these like threats towards this organization. So this organization had looked into her, kind of done some investigative work, but they're like, we have no idea who she is. Based on some of the references she had made in some of her tweets, we have a vague idea of where she's located, maybe like a large metropolitan area. So it'd be like the equivalent of saying, you know, like Oklahoma City or something, right? So it's it's like narrow enough, but it's not really that helpful, right? Right. I'm like, okay, I'll dig in, see what I can find. So she had about 15 or 18,000 tweets on her timeline. Now, most investigators are like, oh, gross. You know, <laughs> I don't want to look at all of that. But to me, yes. I'm like... 
one of those weird guys who will like read every line of you know some publicly traded company's annual report you know like Uh the more material there is the more excited I am because I'm Uh like there's usually answers there somewhere I started basically reading piles and piles of these tweets looking for any clues and in the end what I did was I just downloaded all of her tweets and shoveled them into a spreadsheet And started Mm -hmm. scrolling through them. And there wasn't anything, right? I wasn't finding anything. But then I'm like, okay, well, let's see if she ever makes any references to a different social media platform that maybe I can go find her somewhere else. And in fact, it was very fortuitous because she had mentioned she was like on a fan page for like Young and the Restless. (laughs) And she had cross posted a link to the group on in one of her tweets. So in one of her tweets, she had actually mentioned this like Young and the Restless group and had made some comment about YNR. And uh, I was like, ooh, okay. So she is probably in that Facebook group. So I jumped over to the Facebook group and started searching around. And sure enough, I found a Facebook account that had the identical profile picture of the Twitter account. Wasn't enough to de-anonymize her quite yet because I didn't know anything about whether her name was accurate or not. I needed more information effectively in order to do some other searches and databases. So I started looking through her Facebook account. One of the things that she did was she had purchased a new vehicle and she takes a picture of the vehicle from her apartment, right? So she has the vehicle parked out on the street and she takes a picture from her apartment. And in this photograph, there's not really anything. There's no road signs. There's nothing really identifiable. You can't really tell where it is. However, in the background, there's a strip mall, but there's trees on a boulevard that covers all the signs from the strip mall. Mm-hmm. But in one spot where the trees dip down, you can make out the letters M-A-C-Y. So I'm like, she lives near a pharmacy. She's across mm-hmm. the street. Pharmacy, right? M-A-C-Y, because the rest of the sign was concealed. So I had a general idea of this large metropolitan area of where she could potentially be located. I figured out that the intersection that where she had taken the picture was a four-way intersection and that mm-hmm. there was a pharmacy in a strip mall. So I went to Google Maps and I typed in pharmacy in this large metropolitan area and literally clicked through every pharmacy I could find that was at a four-way intersection in a strip mall using Google Street View to orient myself. And eventually I found the exact location of where she lives. Now, because I could see the angle of where she took the photograph, I could also determine what floor of her apartment building she was on. And then I was able to determine her full address by by literally just doing that, right? So I had her full address and I had her name I could get a, get someone to run a search up and this was all up here in Canada. So we have mm-hmm. vastly different privacy laws than in the United States. We don't have TLO up here, for example, oh, okay. um, but in some provinces you can run insurance checks and lien checks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I knew the make and model of her vehicle. I had an alleged name and an address. We ran a search. It came back to the exact make and model of the vehicle. We had her fully de-anonymized. We knew where she lived and we were able to provide this information to the organization so that they could address the threats. So that one was That's a lot awesome. of fun because it was just kind of like doing the dirty work that other people either were like, this is too overwhelming, there's too much information, or it's too hard. And just literally, you know, putting in the time to kind of dig around and and look for, you know, connections, and then just following your nose through the data. One step leading to the next step to the next step. Yeah, there's just kind of this interesting balance, because by using technology to work cases, I think sometimes we get into the ditch of, we should be able to automate this, like, we should be able to automate anything and forget the 
old school, like tracking down each step and manual things. But it's really, I think, when those two things are balanced and just middle of the road, which is what you just described. You use technology and data sources to find these things, but then kind of good old detective work to connect those dots. And that is awesome. Love it. I teach people how to do automation, right? How to how to do this work. But I always tell them, listen, automation should be for data collection. That's a great job for a computer. Yeah, Go out, pull down a bunch of data, but you will never replace the human. Never. Right. You can bring all the AI, fancy machine learning, whiz bang, cloud-based blockchain, blah, blah, blah to me. Mm-hmm. And it's never going to beat a tenacious investigator with experience and hunches and gut instincts and training yep. and all of that. You just won't. So yeah, I used a bit of automation because I didn't want to manually copy and paste 18,000 tweets. Sure. But the automation sure. was just to get the data in a format that I could then apply my human-based intuition to, right? I love that because we were talking about this in our team just in the last couple of weeks, talking about automating that data on the front. What you said, I love how you said that because I'm going to go back and use it with my team. Let's automate the data gathering. But I told them like the secret sauce for us is how do we look at these transactions and how do we connect the dots on these transactions? And we can create all the tests in the world for like data analytics tests. We can create all those tests But still, there might be one you didn't think about because every case has something kind of unique. And so that's why we get paid. That's where we create value is in that spot right there. Like, how can we creatively look at this situation and connect dots and and find the name and address of where somebody lives? Yeah, (laughs) That's awesome. Okay, so you definitely like set me up for one of our last questions here (laughs) on... uh, So what do you say and tell people who say that open source intelligence is, whether they're using it in investigations or whatever, is creepy and scary? Well, I mean, I, I, much like the law, a lot of it is about intent, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for example, I don't do work ever if, and I've had people come to me and say, well, you know, we have this journalist poking around. I'm like, nope, don't touch journalists. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, That's creepy, scary. And, and in my view, disgusting. Right mm-hmm. now, you can see that the exact same question asked, hey, we have this person threatening our organization or people at our organization and we're worried. That's different. Right. Mm-hmm. There's intent to harm or at least intent to make people scared. So the intent behind my research is different. Right. So it, it's much like anything. I mean, in the hacking world, we always people always put this thing on us about dual use. Dual use meaning that I can build a hacking tool that a Fortune 500 can help save millions of dollars, but that same tool can be used to defraud millions of old people from their retirement savings, right? right? Yeah. Uh, as people use it to hack into other things. Same tool, two different intents. Yeah. So I think that that's the, that's the thing we really need to examine is, is the context around how it's being used and why it's being used. And certainly it means that yeah, you have a lot of skills in an area where you can dig up information on your neighbor, um, but you don't, right? Because that context is, you know, it's creepy and scary. I think it also raises great talking points around privacy, right? That the more we talk about how these investigations work and information that's available online, the more the average citizen through osmosis is learning a bit more about how to protect themselves online. They're picking up bits and pieces about making them think about, do I need to have my Facebook account exposed to the whole world? Should I allow my children to have an unprotected YouTube account where they stream, you know, combing their Barbie's hair? These are all things that need to be part of the conversation for anybody who's not living in a cave, right? We need to 
we need to consider these things and, and privacy implications. And, and people like me who are out doing this work are raising it on both ends. I'm very much all for people being able to lock down and, and encrypt and hide information, but I'm also all for lawful access and a whole bunch of other things. So there's always a balance. There's always going to be a bit of a, um, a tug of war back and forth between privacy and security and solving crime and closing cases. And that tug of war is important and uh, it's valuable to, to everybody, including, you know, the larger society. I always like thinking about it too. How can I, as an individual, play a part in this? And I'm probably not going to, I mean, I don't know, maybe one day I'll weigh in on some sort of legislation or something like that. But today, am I really weighing in on anything like that? No. But what I can influence are how does Workman Forensics, how do we use people's information? How do we use this to help our clients? Like what are just kind of our ethical standards related to this type of research? One of the things people ask me all the time, like if I tell them I own a forensic accounting practice, they'll say, oh my goodness, don't look me up. Do you get that? Do people say that to you too? Like, please don't look me up. I get Yeah, I get it all. Trust me. If, if my name, when I worked for the Bureau, if my name comes across your desk, just, you know, pass by. I'm like, oh my gosh, no. Yeah. But, but also, I mean, the reality is that like we have lives and I don't just randomly look people up for fun. One, from an ethical obligation, but also just from being, I hope, a well-rounded human being that I have other things to do with my time. For me, it's how can we have these discussions like you talked about and how is that going to affect our current world and even generations after us? But then today, what can we do to make sure that whenever we're looking up information for a client that we're doing so with professional care, not just for our client, but also for the people that we're looking up. And we had this come up on a case where somebody, one of our clients thought that someone was connected to a fraud. And so we researched this person. And as we were putting a report together, I actually said, you know, does the client really need this guy's address? No. Does the client really need to know anything about this guy other than he's not connected? And we all yeah. said, no. He doesn't need to know that. So we just left it blank, not applicable for these individuals that he ran across their name, but they're not really connected. So just taking those little steps every day. I worked a case not long ago, too, that was actually, uh, it was related to, you know, some some people had uh, published some unfriendly things about a wealthy group of people. And those wealthy group of people were like, well, we want to get to the bottom of this. And I'm mm -hmm. like, well, why? Right. Right. Like you're upset. Like, that's not a good reason to do an investigation. However, what I can demonstrate, because they were like bound and determined that there was something really nefarious going on. Either there was an insider or someone was leaking information. I'm like, well, here's a better idea. Why don't you hire me to see if I can do parallel construction and basically show you how this person could have found the information that they had. Right. Yeah. And I don't have I don't have any leakers or whistleblowers or anybody in your organization that's going to help me why don't you see if i can go out and construct all this and they're like okay fine and i came back and i'm like yeah here here's like the 10 places where i could have wrote the exact same report based on this information that was publicly available drop the witch hunt and yeah, you know they were paying customers and they weren't happy about the report but <laughs> right. they dropped it and they were like this is well researched you're right. We're not happy about it, but you're right. And I'm like, well, I mean, why go on a witch hunt when there's no need for one? You have better things to do with your time. And this information is all publicly available. And it involved all kinds of stuff. Like it was a really interesting case. Yeah. I mean, it's intent and it's, you're right. Like there are, 
there are definitely times where you got to look at what you're writing in your report and say, is this necessary to answer the, the intelligence question I'm being asked? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it really is not. But that's the difference between good investigators and bad, is that final product, you know, is uh, has got to be accurate and not overblown and not full of hyperbole, or it's got to speak to the facts and not ponder possibilities uh, you know it's uh, that's i've seen a lot of bizarre reports that contain things and i'm like this would never pass muster in court right right it's about finding the truth it's not mm-hmm. about finding the story the client wants us to find and that's right. it's one of my favorite things to do but it's also the most challenging thing to do of course you seem to be constantly working to improve tools and resources just when i was researching your company and looking at all the trainings that you've done and then hunchly it just kind of created the question for me is there anything that you're working on now that you would care to share I'm fascinated by the work that forensic accountants do and, you know, how due diligence teams investigate companies and frauds and short sellers. So really, that's where I've been spending a lot of my time is just like looking at some of these really interesting things, how people are busting frauds and Mm -hmm. how people are figuring out when companies are up to no good. So I've taken a really deep interest in that. And this is where I've been spending my research time recently. But I also feel like, I don't know, it's the the longer I, and maybe maybe the older I get, the more I realize that there are a number of systems that just do not function correctly. Mm-hmm. Right. The mm-hmm. justice yeah. system, the healthcare system, the social system. And what I particularly love about fraud busters in the financial world, whether they're short sellers or otherwise, is it's it seems like the one way that you can kind of stand up and say, you're a fraud. Here's all the information. Anybody can reproduce this work and uh, you should go out of business. I, yeah. There's just something about that that really speaks to me because I've seen, and and the, as you and I both know, the financial system is completely dysfunctional, <laughs> but it just feels like there's this one corner of the world where there are people who are taking a stand against it, right? Mm-hmm. And I really like that. So it's uh, it's been really fascinating. I, I just, you know, for me, I, I wish I had more knowledge uh, in the accounting side of things. And that's where I really loved listening, uh, you know, giving you a back plug for your own oh, podcast. Nice. Yeah. You know, that's where I really love when I heard about your podcast. I'm like, oh, my God, these are people who can teach me a bunch of stuff that I'm really, you know, really interested in. And people like Kelly Paxton are an incredible wealth of knowledge in the fraud space, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So... That's the stuff I'm really been interested in and, and nothing new on the product front at all, actually. For us with Hunchly, mm-hmm. uh, we've actually, we've taken a whole new focus in 2019 of not adding more stuff, but making the stuff we have be faster, better, more efficient, and more reliable. That's yeah. That's been our whole thing. So it's not super sexy to talk about, but it's kind of our, our doubling down and recommitment to quality for our customers, for sure. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been really awesome to talk to you. And before I let you go, though, would you let our listeners know the best way to connect with you and just kind of see what you're up to and any places that you're sharing your research and sharing what you're discovering and then also how to find Hunchly? Yeah, sure. So you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at JMS underscore D-O-T underscore P-Y. Uh, or you can just search for Justin Sites and look for the dude that's talking about Python and OSINT. You can also just shoot me an email directly, justin at hunch.ly. And hunch.ly is uh, the main website for Hunchly. Uh, so you can grab a trial there or send us an email if you got any questions. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Justin. Like I said, thanks for joining our podcast. It's been great talking to you and just learning more about this space. Hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
To get updates on future podcasts, events, and resources, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.